Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Well, Horatio Spafford, somebody, uh, some of you guys may be familiar with, with who he is, but Horatio Spafford was a successful businessman. He was a, a, a wealthy investor. Uh, he was a family man, and he was a devout Christian man. Uh, he was blessed, really, in every sense of the word, uh, in, in every aspect of his life. He was uh, a successful lawyer. He was uh, a senior partner in a large law firm. Uh, he was a, a wealthy real estate in, investor, had made millions upon millions of dollars investing his money in the real estate uh, market. He had a, a wonderful wife, four beautiful daughters, and he was actually really good friends with Dwight L. Moody, the famous evangelist. He attended D.L. Moody's church there in, in Chicago. And so for Horatio uh, Spafford, man, everything was great. Life was perfect. Everything was going as planned until, of course, it wasn't. Because if there's anything in life that's certain at all, it's that life is uncertain. And it was about this time of year, 150 years ago, on October 8th, 1871, that as the story goes, Miss O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern in the bar. You guys, you, guys, you, you campers know that song. Late one night while we were all in bed, boom, 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 Miss O'Leary left the lantern in the shed. And when the cow kicked it over, this is what she said. It's going to be a hot one in the old town tonight. Fire, fire, fire. I guess I'm the only guy who heard that one at camp. But they, they made a camp song out of it. <clears throat> See, this is where you guys participate, but you haven't heard it, so that's okay. Don't feel bad. The first service hadn't either. I was just taking my chances on the second group. But this uh, lantern being kicked over, this little fire that started in Miss O'Leary's barn, it grew into what we now know as the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And that fire burned for three days. It torched over three square miles of the city. Uh, 17,000 structures burned to the ground, 300 people died, and 100,000 more people were displaced. And on that day, Horatio Spafford, man, everything that he owned was lost. All of his investments lost, his personal possessions gone, and anybody who has ever gone through a fire, I mean, we live in fire country. Well, we all, if we haven't been through it, know somebody who has. What a devastating thing it is when your life is just burnt to the ground and everything you have worked for is suddenly gone. And so as a devastating uh, you know, situation as that was, he said, we're together, we're safe. And so they picked up the pieces, they came up with a new plan, and they said, we're moving to England, and we're going to start over. So on November 21st, 1871, Horatio put his wife and his four daughters uh, aboard uh, a French ocean liner called the, the Ville de Havre, and away they went across the Atlantic Ocean. His plan was to just finish up some business deals there in Chicago and then join them uh, in Europe just a, a couple weeks later. But four days into that journey across the Atlantic, the ocean liner carrying his wife and kids collided with this iron hold, a Scottish ship called the Loch Urn. Twelve minutes later, that ship sank to the bottom of the ocean. The, the Ville de Havre slipped beneath the ocean waves, and it was never seen again. And 213 
of the 300 passengers aboard died that day. And of those who were lost at sea, all four of his daughters died. His wife narrowly escaped. She was rescued uh, and eventually made it to shore via rowboat. And she wired her husband there from land. And her, her telegraph simply said, saved alone, what shall I do? And so Horatio, heartbroken, he immediately set sail, headed for his wife on the other side of the sea. And as they approached the place where the Ville de Harva sank, the captain called him and said, I, I want you to know this is, this is where your daughters went down to give him a moment to just say goodbye to his little girls. And it was in that moment that he wrote the famous words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Daha has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And you say, wow, how could he pen such words of hope in an hour that is so dark? How is it even possible? How could he have peace? How could he have joy in the midst of such a, a, a trial? And that's what I want to discuss with you guys this morning, is how can we have peace in the midst of difficulty? How can we have joy in the midst of trial? As Paul is going to say, how is it that we can glory in our tribulations? And so we'll pick up uh, really in verse 1 of, of chapter 5 this morning. And Paul starts off by saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance uh, character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So as we kind of uh, open up chapter 5, it feels like Paul kind of veers off into left field for a minute, doesn't it? You know, so we've been talking about justification by faith. And then he starts talking about glorying in tribulation. So where's the connection? How, how do justification by faith and joy and tribulation, how do they connect? What do they have to do with one another? Well, Paul, as we have looked at uh, the book of Romans, he has been very calculated in his presentation of the gospel. And the very first thing that Paul did as he opened the book of Romans was he established our need for a Savior by showing us as humanity our undeniable guilt. Right? There are none righteous, no, not one. None. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as you guys know, uh, all in Greek means all. Everybody. Every single person. And so Paul begins the book of Romans by showing us that we are guilty before the Lord there's not a single excuse that we can offer that's good enough for pardon. But after showing us our need for salvation, he shows us how to obtain salvation. And that's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. 
The secret to salvation, justification by faith. The salvation doesn't come by us earning it, not by keeping the law or being a good neighbor or by praying enough or knowing enough of the Bible or giving enough to charity. Salvation comes because we've been justified by faith. And justification means that we have been declared righteous. Justification means uh, that, that my life uh, that my guilt has been wiped away. It's just as though I have never sinned. Well, how is it that we have been uh, justified? Through redemption. We sold ourselves to sin. But then Jesus bought us back by the work that he did on the cross. How did he purchase us back? Through propitiation. The propitiation of his blood. Propitiation, remember? Again, it means substitute. Propitiation is, means God's wrath has been appeased. Jesus was our substitute. God's wrath that I deserved was poured out on Jesus on the cross so that my sin was not imputed to me, so that my sin was not charged to my account is what imputed means. Instead of my sin being imputed to me, Jesus' righteousness was charged to my account. And all of that, we've been justified. We've been redeemed through propitiation, uh, that, that my sin is not imputed to me, but Christ's righteousness is, all of that is a free gift. It's a free gift. And the thing about a gift is you can't earn it. It's given. And how do we grab a hold of that free gift? The same way you grab a hold of any gift. You pick it up in faith. You believe that's for you. And, and you unwrap it and you make it yours. And so we've, been talking about these things as Paul has opened up Romans. Uh, justification, redemption, propitiation, uh, imputation, grace, faith. And again, to sum it all up, we are all doomed. We are all headed for hell. We are all owned by sin and death. But Jesus came and bought us back. He set us free. He adopted us into God's family by becoming our substitute and dying for us on the cross. Our sin was transferred to him. His righteousness was transferred to us. And when we believe that in our hearts and confess it with our mouths, we're saved. Isn't that amazing? That's what we've been talking about. So, so Paul, he shows our need for salvation and showing that we're guilty. He, he shows us how to obtain uh, salvation. That is justification by faith. And now, in chapter 5, Paul shows us what that really means. So, so how does that translate into my life practically this morning? My sins are forgiven, I've been saved, and now what? And that is where chapter 5 kind of picks up. Chapter 5 begins with therefore. And you guys know, when you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. So it means that he's starting in the middle of a thought. Therefore, therefore, Paul says, having been justified by faith. So that's been our topic, being justified by faith. So, therefore, because of, since we have been justified by faith, we have. And then he goes into a series of these blessings and benefits that we have. Because we have been justified by faith, we have. And so, the beginning of chapter 5 has uh, been called the benefits package for the Christian. This kind of, the benefits, these are the, the benefits that we have as believers. The blessings, the benefits in the Lord. And so because we have been justified by faith, right, Paul begins to, to list these things 
that we get to enjoy. And the first thing we get to enjoy is peace with God. Since, therefore, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean that we have peace with God? Well, human beings, we as humanity, we were created to live in peace with God. In the garden, that's all we had was peace with God. We walked with God in the cool of the day. We enjoyed relationship with the Lord. But sin broke that union. Sin destroyed that peace. And now, in our fallen, sinful state, we have become enemies of God. And we don't like to hear that. We don't like that. Well, God is for me. I'm not an enemy of the Lord. But see, in our fallen nature, our natural disposition is not to please God, but to please ourselves. Our natural carnal disposition is to reject God as God and make ourselves our own God. So really, there is this kind of battle that wages between our carnal nature and the Lord. And that is a battle that is raging for control over our lives. I want to be king over my life, but God is king and we owe our submission and loyalty to him. But you see, God is holy. He's a just God. He can't just overlook our rebellion. He has to be like, oh, well, I created you. I'm God. You should pay me all reverence and honor and respect but you've rebelled against me and you're doing your own thing. You're shaking your fist at me, and so I'm just cool with that. No, God is, there, there's a penalty that is due for that. And so there's this conflict, there's this contention that we have had with God. But now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of Jesus, we're at peace with God. That conflict, that contention, that war, we are, we're free from all of that. Remember, Jesus came. He was the Prince of Peace. Remember when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of the colt of a donkey? Awesome. One of my favorite scriptures because it fulfills Zechariah 9.9, but it also fulfills a sweet scripture we find in, in uh, Daniel that I won't get into this morning. But Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt, it was symbolic. It, it meant something. A king would ride into uh, a city on a donkey when he came in peace. If, if a king came bringing war, well, he would come in battle array, uh, riding on a stallion, but he came to bring peace. And that peace was wrought through the cross of Calvary. So now, boy, through Jesus, through the work of the cross, that thing that stood in the way of peace, sin, has been removed. And so now we have peace. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame. There's no more condemnation. There's no more fear of death. We have peace. Isn't that so great? We have peace with God. But not only peace, Paul goes on to say that now we also have access by faith into his grace. So first benefit, we have peace with God. The contention between us and God, it's over. And because there's peace with God, peace paved the way for relationship. And now we have access to God. And this, I've shared with you guys before, this is one of the things that just blows my mind. That the, the holy, majestic, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God, creator of the universe, desires a relationship with you. And with you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. So much so that he gave everything to have this relationship with us. And that's what we're doing here this morning. I hope that's what you're doing here this morning. I hope that you're not checking off some religious obligation off your list this morning. Well, I went to church 
read the Bible, sang some songs, paid my tithe, check, I'm a good person. What we're doing here this morning is we're enjoying the presence of the Lord because the Bible tells us that his presence is here in our midst in a special way when we gather together. And that's why he says, don't forsake the gathering together of the saints like some do, especially as we approach the end times. It it really is a wonderful thing. We've come to enjoy relationship with the Lord. And not just here, throughout our day, as we pray continually without ceasing, there's this connection that we have with the Lord moment by moment because we have access. We can pray to the Lord anytime. You think about how that translates horizontally. Think about the most powerful man. Uh, I won't even go in the world. Let's just go powerful man in Wairika. You can't even just like march into the mayor's office and be like, I have full access to the mayor. It doesn't even work that way in Wairika, the little podunk town, let alone the president. He said, I don't want to talk to the president. It's just an analogy. But God, the the creator of all things, we have access to him 24-7. But not just just, uh, peace, not just access, but we have hope. Even as we sing, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does it mean that we rejoice in the hope of the Lord? It means that we have a hope in what he's done. Now, the earthly definition of hope is, is shallow. I hope that the Seahawks win tomorrow night. I really do. And the first, you guys did better than the first service. I got booze the first service. I hope that I shoot a buck later this afternoon, right? But hope, that's hope with a big fat question mark. Seahawks, who knows if they're going to win? Who knows if I'm going to get a buck? That's up to the Lord. And earthly hope is hope with a question mark, right? But the biblical definition of hope is a completely different kind of hope. The biblical definition of hope is the absolute assurance of coming good. That's what biblical hope means. So when you see hope in the Bible, it's not hope like I hope this works out. There's a big question. No, biblical hope is hope with an exclamation point. It's settled. It's done. Absolute assurance of coming good. And so what Paul is saying is that we have hope. What is our hope? What do we have the absolute assurance of coming good? What's the coming good that we have absolute assurance of? Jesus, he's coming. Heaven. heaven. We have heaven to look forward to because of what Jesus has done, whether by death or whether by rapture. I vote rapture if I have any choice, but we are going to be with the Lord, and he's gone to prepare a place for us, the word says. See, but here's the thing. When we rebelled and when we sinned, our eternal destiny became hell. Eternal separation from God. It's the state, the Bible says, of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of of separation and sorrow and loneliness and torment and regret. That was our destiny. But because we put our hope and faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, uh, we're now bound for glory. That Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And the Bible says that that place that he's prepared for us, it's an amazing place. There's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering, there's no death. The Bible says that heaven is so amazing that we can't even describe it. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor has even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for us. Let that sink in for a second. Like the most amazing thing that you have ever experienced in your life times a million still doesn't even come close. 
We can't even imagine how awesome have, that is the hope that we have forward to look to. That is the hope that, that we rejoice in. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so Paul, he says, man, these, these benefits that we have, because we've been justified by faith, and we have peace with God, and we say, amen, hallelujah, I'm so glad that we have peace with God. But Paul says, we have access to God. I'm so glad that we have a relationship with our maker. We all give a hearty amen to that statement. Paul goes on to say, man, we have the hope of heaven because of Jesus. Preach it, right? And, and, and then Paul says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Hang on, wait a second, Paul. I'll hold the phone. Say that again? I was with you when we were talking about peace. I was with you when we were talking about access. I was with you when we were talking about hope. But what is this glorying in tribulation all about again? Like, Paul, have you lost your marbles, man? What are you talking? Tribulations are bad. Trials are a bummer. I do not like going through difficulty. How many of you guys like, with a show of hands, going through difficulty? I didn't think so. That was a bad move, raising your hand. The Lord saw that, Matthew. No, I'm just kidding. But by and large, we do not like trials. And so you say, why would Paul say that? Maybe he's never really been through any difficulty. Well, Paul knew something about trouble. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And he describes the trouble that he's faced for, for us there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says uh, that he has labored more abundantly. He has had stripes above measure in prisons more frequently in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. These are beatings, stripes being, being beaten uh, with a, a whip. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, and perils of the Gentiles, and perils of the city, and perils of the wilderness, and perils of the sea, and perils among false brethren, lots of perils, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So Paul says, you want to talk about trouble? I've seen trouble. I've been beaten. I've been locked up. I've been sick, I've been cold, I've been naked, I've been hungry, I've been shipwrecked. If you could imagine it, it's happened to me. And on top of all of that, I'm caring for all of the churches. I've got that that I'm doing. And so Paul understood trouble probably more than all of us understand trouble combined. And, you know, Paul, how did he respond in those times of trouble? It's interesting, you guys remember the story in Acts chapter 16? where him and Silas were preaching the gospel, and they got locked up. They got beat up first. They got beat down by soldiers. They got arrested. They got thrown in prison, chained to the wall. And what did they do? They praised the Lord. They sang. They sang praises unto the Lord. Now, I don't know what they were singing. I imagine it was joyful. I meant, I will celebrate, sing unto... They probably couldn't clap because their hands were chained like this. But they sang. They were joyful. And what happened? Man, there was an earthquake. The earth shook. All of the shackles of all of the prisoners fell off onto the floor. The prison doors swung open. They were free. And then there was this exchange between the jailer and Paul and Silas. The jailer, he was toast. If the prisoners escaped, it was his life. 
It was his head on the chopping block. And so he goes to fall on his own sword. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 wait, no, 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 no. We're not going anywhere, right, guys? We're all going to stay here, yeah, yeah. And the jailer heard the gospel, and he was saved, and his whole family was saved. See, Paul understood something that we would be good to take note of this morning. And that is in the trial, in the hardship, in the trouble, God is at work. Not sometimes, not most of the time, but all of the time. God is at work in the midst of our tribulations. And and, and that's what Paul knew, and that's how he could respond. And so Paul begins to break that down for us. When he says we glory in tribulation, he just doesn't leave it there. He qualifies it for us. Well, why should we glory in tribulation? Paul says, well, I'll tell you why. Because tribulation brings patience. It works patience. When we go through difficulties, those difficulties teach us to wait on the Lord. Those difficulties teach us that the Lord's timing is the timing. I can want things to happen the way I want them to happen, but when we get into trouble, and you know it's the case, one of the first things that run through my mind after I think of them, why did this happen to me? I I want this to change. I want this to shift and that to shift and this to go. I want things to go according to my plan and my timing. They just don't. Tribulation, trials, teach us. They work patience into our life uh, to trust him, to trust his timing. But patience, it says, works experience. Patience works experience. So as we walk with the Lord, we grow in the Lord. As we get experience with the Lord, we begin to learn, learn his will for our lives, Learn to hear his voice. Do you know the Bible tells us in the Psalms that that God desires to lead us by his eye? That means that we're just so in tune with God's will for our life that he looks left and we go left. That he looks right and we go right. See, but but that doesn't happen the first day you're saved. I wish it did. It doesn't even happen many years after you're saved, really, to be honest with you. It takes some time. It's, It's this process we're going through called sanctification that we'll talk about in a minute. But that's what it means to have experience that's patient, learning to trust the Lord. All right, Lord, I'm going to have patience. And I'm going to, that patience, it works experience, that, that, that we begin to, to hear the Lord, that he leads us, that we become in tune uh, with his will for our life. And then experience works hope. It works hope. Again, hope, absolute assurance of coming good. So the more experience that I have with the Lord, the more I've come to understand that when I face difficulty in my life, the Lord will see me through. How many of you guys can relate to this? Like you go through something and you're like, Lord, I just need you to show up. I need you to work this out. I need you to fill in the blank. And then the Lord shows up and you're like, praise the Lord. Thank you, God. You are faithful. I knew you're faithful. I have those passages highlighted in my Bible. I knew you would come through. And then you walk down the block, and all of a sudden, there's another trial that happens. Oh, Lord, where are you? And he's like, did you just forget what I just did for you? You forget that I will. And as we experience, works hope. That is, we remember, we have that hope, that absolute assurance that God is going to see us through. Tribulation works patience. Patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope does not let us down. No matter what's going on in our life, we know that the Lord will be there for us. 
God is at work in all of our troubles. And again, that's what Paul has come to realize, and that's how he can say glory in tribulations. It's all a part of the sanctification process that we are going through, each and every single one of us, that the Lord is taking us, the people that we were when he found us, and he's making us into the people that he wants us to be for all of eternity. He's molding and shaping, and he's building our character. See, our character when the Lord found us left a lot to be desired. Our carnal character is flawed at best. It's like that scene from you know, the small town courtroom there where uh, there was a prosecuting uh, attorney and he called his first witness to the stand. She was an old woman. And the attorney approached her and said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? And she said, well, of course I know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were just a little boy and frankly, you've become a huge disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat, you manipulate people, and you talk about them behind your backs. You think you're a big shot, but you're nothing but a a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. And so the lawyer was stunned, and and he didn't know what to do. So he looked across the room, and he looked at the defense attorney and said, well, do you know Mr. Bradley? And she said, well, of course I know Mr. Bradley. I've known him since he was a youngster, too. I used to babysit him, and he's been a huge disappointment to me also. He's lazy, he's bigoted, he has a drinking problem, he can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. Oh yeah, I know him. Now at this point, the judge wrapped his gavel and he said, lawyers, come to me right now. He said, if either one of you asks that woman if she knows me, I will hold you in contempt of court. Oh, why? Because she would have dirt on him too. See, we all have dirt, we all have character flaws. And, and, And that's what the Lord is doing through the sanctification process is he's working those things out of us that ought not be there, and we're working those things into us that ought be there. And the process that he uses oftentimes are the troubles that we face. There's something about troubles that grab my attention. There's something about troubles that that the Lord can use like nothing else in my life to cause me to grow, to strengthen me. There's a, a poem that I found. It's called Good Timber. And he goes like this, says, The tree that never had to fight for sun and sky and air and light, that stood out in the open plain and always got its share of rain, never became a forest king, but lived and died a scrubby thing. The man who never had to toil to heaven from the common soil, who never had to win his share of sun and sky and light and air, never became a manly man, but lived and died as he began. Good timber does not grow in ease. The stronger the wind, the tougher the trees. The further the sky, the greater the length, the more the storm, the more the strength. By sun and cold, by rain and snows, in tree or man, good timber grows. I thought, man, that's so good. Because it is those difficulties that really, in the end, strengthen us and build character into us. And so as we're going through trials, we can be assured that it's not just a coincidence. It's not just a happenstance. Trials come into our lives for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's because we've been idiots. Sometimes it's just because we live in a fallen world. But as believers, we can know one thing for sure. That no matter why the trial has come, the Lord will use it to grow us and strengthen us, mature us, and build character. That's what he's doing with our lives. Is he's shaping them and he's molding them. And Jeremiah likens humanity to clay 
and God to the potter. Check this out in Jeremiah 18, starting in verse 1. It says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he had made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord, look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. See, that's what the potter does. He molds and he shapes and he, he creates. He was making something out of that lump of clay. Anybody have uh, experience with pottery? Anybody ever do pottery? It's pretty fun. My wife does. I know she does because we took pottery together in college. <laughs> it was really fun. It was kind of a waste of money and college credits, but it was still fun. Uh, I think we still have some of the goofy pottery that I made. Uh, but pottery was really fun for us. It, it wasn't so fun for the clay, though. <laughs> you see, you take the clay and you have a big lump. And first you slice a chunk off. So after it's sliced, you take it over this canvas-covered table and you just press it and, and press it, press it and push it and squeeze. It's called wedging. You basically knead all the air out of it so that you don't get a bubble and imperfection in your finished work. So after all the air is out of it and it, it's malleable, you take it over to the wheel and you gently place it on there. No, you slap it down on the wheel so it goes plop. And then you get the wheel going, and it goes around and around and around and around. And you place great pressure with all your weight to center that clay on the wheel. And then it goes around, and you pinch it, and you push it, and you pull it. And then when it's all done, you say, wow, that's great. And the clay is finally going, whew, I'm done spinning. You're done pushing. You're done poking. And then you cut it off and throw it into the oven at a gazillion degrees, and it gets baked in the kiln. Things heat up. It's not very fun for the clay, but you know, that's how life is sometimes. And I feel like sometimes in my life I can relate to the clay. I feel like, man, I'm being just pressed on all sides. I feel like life is just going around and around and around, and I'm getting pulled and poked and pushed in all directions. I feel like things just heat up, and I say, man, what is going on? But the Lord is doing something. He's forming us. He's shaping us, and it's not an accident. See, the potter, in the story there in Jeremiah, he was making something on purpose. It wasn't just this exercise in futility. Oh, I don't like it, so I'll smash it down and make something else, and I'll smash no, There was a goal in mind, and God has a goal in mind for us. Ephesians 2.10 says that you are his workmanship. Workmanship in the Greek is poema. It's where we get the word poem. It means work of art. It means masterpiece. You are God's work of art. You are God's masterpiece. And that's what he's doing with your life in this process of sanctification. He, he's making you into the person you're going to be for all of eternity. And that process, as painful as it is, Paul says, man, we can glory in tribulation because when we feel the pressure, when life is spinning, when things heat up, we know that God is at work. And we know that someday when we see things from his perspective, we're not going to say, Lord, how could you allow me to go through that? Lord, how could you let the relationship dissolve or the job end or the, the health report come back in that way? 
We're going to say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. You knew what you were doing. I want you to know this morning that no matter what you are going through, you can trust the potter. You can trust the one who's working on your life. You say, how do I know that I can trust him? He's being awful rough with me. How do I know that I can trust the potter? The hands that are forming your life, the hands that form the clay, remember that those hands are scaled, are, are scarred by the nail prints from being nailed to the cross. The foot that is kicking the wheel that's making your life go round and round. Remember, those feet are scarred with the nail prints where they were nailed to the cross. Jesus purchased you. He bought your life with everything. And he, as we've talked about, is going to see you through. He's going to finish the good work that he started in you. He is the author. He is the perfecter of your faith. Trouble in this life is a guarantee. It's a certainty. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. First Peter, Peter tells us, he says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening. And that's what we think. Some strange, some trial happens and we think, well, what is this strange thing? Why is this happening to me? Paul, Peter says, don't think about it that way. Don't think that this is some strange thing. Jesus told us, in this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say you might. He didn't say you probably will. He said you absolutely will. But we can glory in our tribulation, even as Paul has told us. We can count all joy when we face various trials, like James tells us in one, two of his book. And we can be of good cheer, like Jesus has told us. See, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulations, but he didn't leave it there. And like I've said before, I'm so glad that wasn't the end of his statement. Just wanted to let you guys know life is going to be rough. See ya. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. He didn't say, be a grumpy, frowny pessimist. Oh, I lost my tail. No, he says, be of good cheer. And you know, listen, I get it. If you feel like I'm preaching it this morning, and I understand. I know that it is so much easier to sit in here this morning and talk about, I'm going to glory in my tribulations. The next time something bad happens, I'm just going to praise the Lord. It's much easier to talk about it than it is to do it. And that's where faith comes in. See, the Lord has given us a, a, a choice. And oftentimes when we face troubles... Instead of remembering this, instead of saying we're going to glory in tribulations, I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to rejoice in, in the difficulty. I'm going to count it joy in the trial. Oftentimes, instead of focusing our attention on the Lord by faith, we focus our energies on the trouble. And we meditate on those things. But the Bible tells us that we're to take those thoughts captive. Right? Where we're tempted to just, and it's easy, it's kind of my default setting, if I'm honest. When things go bad, I want to be grumpy. I want to be angry. I want to be depressed sometimes. The Lord says, take those thoughts captive, not in your own strength, in the name of Jesus, and then do what? Think on things that are true and honest and pure and lovely, of good report, anything with virtue, anything that's praiseworthy. 
That's not some sort of like self-help thing that I'm trying to, to pitch to you guys. It's the truth of God's word that helps us. Get it. And it's interesting because we wrestled through this uh, at our men's Bible study a couple days ago. The ladies talked about it. And then here we are this morning talking about it. It's not by coincidence. We go through difficulty. And I want you to know this morning that we can have joy in the difficulty because the Lord is at work. Remember that. In faith, keep your eyes fixed on who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to do in this thing that we, we do called communion. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus in a special way. See, because remember at the beginning when I said, well, what does justification by faith have to do with glorying in our trials and tribulations? Well, here's, it has everything to do with that. For you see, if we weren't justified by faith, if Jesus never took care of our sin, if we didn't have peace and access and hope of heaven, there would be no glorying in our tribulation because it would be all for nothing. See, we have something the world doesn't have. All of the world goes through trouble. I don't care who you are, where you come from, how rich you are, what your makeup is. All go through trouble. But for us, we have the promise in Jesus that he's at work in our lives. And we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can glory in our tribulations. And so as we come forward and take communion this morning, put your focus on that. Because we have been justified by faith, we can glory even in our tribulations because God is at work in the good and he's at work in the bad. And I'm so grateful for that. And I pray for you, if you're going through something this morning, rejoice in faith. Even like the man who had a sick son, he went to the Lord and said, Lord, I believe, only help my unbelief. And sometimes that's all we've got. But give what we have to the Lord and let him do the rest. Come to the table and remember. And so Lord, we just thank you so much that you've taken this, this lump this really valueless clay, Lord, and that you've made it your own and that you're shaping me and you're shaping us. You're building things into us, character. Lord, that you have a future and a hope planned for us. Lord, I thank you that, that we're saved and we have peace with you. We have access to you. We have heaven to look forward to. And I thank you, Lord, that until we get to heaven, that even while we're here on earth dealing with difficulty, we can rejoice even in those. You're in those things too. There's so much freedom in that, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to walk in that. That as we come to the table, there would be a freeness, a freedom, a weight lifted in knowing that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, we cast our cares upon you this morning. We rejoice in the good and the bad by faith knowing that because of the cross, Lord, we belong to you and that you bring us from glory to greater glory and that we have the absolute assurance of heaven. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us, that you're near us, that you're gonna see us through. And as we come to the table, as we hold the bread, Lord, may we remember that you died as a substitute, that the beatings that you took, they should have been mine. Lord, that when you were chained and when you were mocked, I should have been. But Lord, you were, you were beaten and chained that I might experience freedom. And I pray that we would take that in as we take in the bread this morning. And as we hold the juice, Lord, you said in the upper room to your disciples that this is the wine of the new covenant. The new covenant. It's no longer by our behavior that we earn favor, not by trying to keep the law, but it's through 
believing because of the blood. Our sins were scarlet, but they've been washed white as snow. And Lord, we're so grateful for that. And as we drink the juice in, may we take that truth and that reality in fresh again today, that we would walk in all that you have for us. Thank you, Lord. Again, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.